Good morning, everyone. It's good to be back with you. I've been out for a little while. And so uh, I say out. I was here two weeks ago when Michael Nieves was preaching. Then I was here last week. I was away last week, and and, uh, Pastor Mario was speaking. Uh, What you don't know, you know that you've been out uh, because uh, this microphone that I wear actually fits to your head or to your ear. And my ear is an entirely different size than these other guys. So I feel like... I'm wearing someone else's uh, shoes, you know, um, and you just know that things aren't exactly the way that they were, and that's okay. Uh, it's good to be back with you. It's good to, to be here. Last week we were in Ohio, and my daughter was in a soccer tournament out of state. We've never done that before, so we're kind of entering that phase of life to some extent. Uh, there was a lot of storms, if you remember, last weekend, and so uh, her game was at 8 o'clock in the morning, uh, Sunday morning last week. And, uh, and there was a thunderstorm that came in, and so the game got reduced to about 12 minutes. And so, uh, long story short, the game was over, the rain stopped the game, and we were done at about 9 o'clock in the morning in Ohio. And so uh, I couldn't make it to the service, so I apologize that we didn't get here for that. But um, we, we were able to salvage the weekend. We came up in Erie, PA. I didn't know that this existed. There's a place called the Presque Isle. I don't know if you've been there before. It was a really beautiful spot, and so we got to spend Sunday afternoon there with our family, and so uh, it was just a good day. So it's good to be back with you. Uh, it, it's a, a neat thing for us to uh, get away every once in a while and be able to have Pastor Brian, Pastor Mario kind of fill the gap in there at times, and so uh, it's good to be back. Right down the street here at Williamsville South yesterday, uh, there was the ECIC uh, Section 6 Divisional Championship type of thing, the the state qualifier that gets uh, these athletes that are in in, uh, the track and field events uh, to go on to the states. And so it was here at Williamsville South. Uh, If you know some of our story, my wife and I met in high school on the track team. And so uh, we decided to go, actually our coaches who coached us Uh, more than 25 years ago are still the coaches of the team for Pioneer Central High School. And so we came back and introduced them to our kids who are, you know, old enough to almost be on their track team again, which is kind of an interesting thing. And so uh, we went there and it was just a reminder to me, if if you go to any of these events, like if you were good in high school and you start to think, man, I could be, I, I could be out there on that track again, you know? And, and then you watch them go, and I'm reminded of when I was in the state qualifier, and I was in track, I ran the 400-meter hurdles, and so and I, and I did a few events, so, but that was the one that I remember distinctly, that I had broken my school record, uh, I had been able to get, you know, basically first place in every event all throughout the year, and I come to this state qualifier, and we take off, and all of a sudden, they just all ran away from me. It was amazing. It was like suddenly all, everybody had these rocket booster jets that I didn't have. And I figured I must be injured. There must be something wrong. There's no way this could be happening to me right now. And what actually happened was I ran my own personal best that I had ever run in my whole life and came in dead last. It's amazing. It's incredible. But here's what I want to tie in this morning to where the message is going this morning. Uh, The prophet Jeremiah said this in Jeremiah chapter 12, verse 5. He says this, if you have fainted when you run with the footmen or the runners, how are you going to contend with the horses? And so really what's going to happen here is we begin a a new sermon series. Uh, We're still in Romans. Uh, We're beginning in Romans chapter 9. And I want you to be able to understand and see if you have had trouble keeping up with us up to this point, Romans 1 through 8, chapter 9 is going to feel like the horses just took off. Like you are standing there at the beginning and everyone else just took off and left you because there's a lot to handle here. But first I want to kind of cover where we've been so far in the gospel of Paul uh, that we call Romans. And so if you've had some difficulty with where we've been so far, I want to kind of tie it into where we're going to be going. So some natural divisions, chapter 1 through 8 is a natural division, chapter 9 through 11 where we're going to be with this sermon series, and then we'll finish up chapters 12 through the end of the book are kind of the three big ideas of the book. Uh, But we've been going through it in smaller chunks. If you remember, we started with Romans chapter 1 through 4, and we call that the beautiful collision. We talked about this really important letter, this gospel that has been written by the Apostle Paul, and how he goes to great lengths to articulate the good news of the gospel, and that the good news of the gospel is for everyone. And then we went into this reign of grace. 
amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And what does it mean for us to live a life full of grace, accepting the grace that has been given to us, free from guilt and from shame? And then we went through Romans chapter 5, 6, and 7. Then we get kind of to the apex of the book, if you will. Romans chapter 8. We started that Easter Sunday. We are more than conquerors, we talked about. And we walked through this most exciting of chapters, and we realize, and you are hopefully inspired and strengthened by the greatness and the glory of Christ. And at the end of the chapter 8, verse 38, this is what we covered last week, Paul says, I'm convinced that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And you walked out of here dancing on your tiptoes. And then we get to chapter 9. We're going to get to chapter 12. I have to tell you, chapter 12 says this, let your hope make you glad. Be patient in time of trouble. Never stop praying. There's an excitement. Chapter 8 and chapter 12 seem to have the same line of thought. And, and for some reason, 9 through 11 just seems to take this momentary lapse and, and step back and look at it. And so why we've called the sermon series that we're in right now, uh, we're really trying to call it that we have this hope. Because I want you to see chapter 12 coming. Because chapters 9 through 11 are going to be a little bit more difficult to swallow. Let your hope make you glad. Be patient in time of trouble and never stop praying. You see, when we look at the world around us, we are discouraged. There's depressing news. If you've watched the news at all this weekend of the tragedy that happened there in Virginia Beach, I was stationed there in Virginia Beach for about a year, and so I kind of know the area to some extent, and just the, the, the culture that's there, and it's, it's really, it's bad. You don't know how to handle it and, it, and it threatens to flood us, our hearts, flood our nation, flood our church, flood our spirits with hopelessness. So there is not a more appropriate time for us to look at these passages, to wrestle with some of the difficult things, because actually Paul is wrestling with some really difficult things in his own life as he writes these chapters. And we're praying that this series will build some, some hope in your life, that you have in the place of fear, yielding a life that is beautiful virtue and life-transforming grace. That's where we're trying to go with this series. Why? Because that's where these chapters are going. Martin Luther made this statement, and it's in your uh, bulletin insert this morning. If you want to get that out, it's a white sheet of paper. It came in your bulletin. It just helps you track along with where we're going today with the message. And it says this, by Martin Luther, everything that is done in this world is done by hope. Everything that is done in this world is done by hope. If you're not familiar who Martin Luther is, he's the one who he nailed up his 95 theses on the wall that says, we, we cannot live in this way anymore. Then he turned all the Catholic, Roman Catholics against him which was the only church of the day, but he, he turned them against him because he saw some real breakdown between what the gospel says or what the Bible says and what was being performed there in the Catholic church. So in 1517, he nailed up his 95 theses. He, he refused to renounce his writings by the demand of the Pope and also the demand of the Roman Emperor. And so uh, as he, he refuses to do that. He's excommunicated not only from the church, but now is living his life as an outlaw. And he's the one that says, in the midst of all of that, that everything that is done in this world is done through hope. As he's excommunicated, as he has been pushed away, he's on the outskirts of all things, seemingly hopelessness. Where's the hope in that? I'm going to look today at Romans chapter 9 through the lens of the author, the Apostle Paul. Somewhere between AD 55 and AD 60 is when the book of Romans is written. Somewhere between 80, 58, 80, 60, the Apostle Paul was going to go through an ordeal that would leave him shipwrecked. Whether he wrote this book just before that, while that was happening, it's, it's most likely he, he finished it before he was shipwrecked. But there's some parallels there to this internal storm and spiritual storm inside of Paul and the physical storm that he was going to face, which is over in Acts chapter 27 and 28. And so last week at this, in Ohio, at this soccer tournament, what ends up happening is the kids are beginning to play the game, and off in the distance there's a lightning crack, and the thunder rumbles, and immediately, if you've got kids in sports now, immediately they stop everything and make everyone get undercover, which actually means they just kind of step to the side of the field. 
So the lightning that would have hit them while they were playing soccer now can't hit them, right? But in, in this example, I'm, I'm going to give you this morning some cues or some lightning strikes. Why do they do that? Why do they pull you off the field? Well, because when you see lightning, that means that there's a storm coming. There's some cues to the storm that's coming. And this morning, we're going to talk about some cues to maybe the internal storm that is happening in your life or the internal storm that was happening here within the Apostle Paul. So get out your pencils. There's one right there. If you've got, you've got your Bibles yet to Acts, excuse me, to Romans chapter 9, and we'll be going back and forth with Acts chapter 27 as well. But if you've got your Bibles open to Romans chapter 9, here's your first fill-in I want to share with you this morning. Here's the lightning crack in the distance. You know that you need to take cover when the ones you love break your heart. When the ones you love break your heart, there's an internal storm coming. When the ones you love break your heart. Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, it says this. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. They have the adoption to sonship. Theirs is the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and those promises. They have the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. Paul is addressing, he's beginning this passage. If you remember, he just finished chapter 8 by saying, I'm convinced that nothing will separate us from the love of God that is Christ Jesus our Lord. That absolutely nothing can separate us. And then he begins the next chapter by really referring to this disappointment, this anguish in his heart for the people that he loves, the people of Israel, the ones that he has done all that he can to serve. It's seeming that God has done all that he can to give every opportunity to them. And in that he is seeing great sadness, anguish in his heart, unceasing anguish in his heart. He even goes and he, he kind of says, I'm not being hyperbolic here. I'm not overstating the fact that I would put myself through anguish if they could come to know Christ. This is not so different either from other spiritual leaders we see in Scripture. Spiritual leaders like David who says, Oh, Absalom, Absalom, my son, would it for God that I would die on your behalf? Absalom, I would die so that you would be able to know God and that you would correct your actions. We see the same thing with Moses when he is leading the people out into the desert saying, God, take my life but spare them. And and the Apostle Paul is following suit here. I've got great sorrow, unceasing anguish in my heart. I could wish that I were cursed and cut off from the Christ for the sake of my people, those people of my own race, blood of my blood. These are my people. I can't seem to reach them. Now, the Apostle Paul, who wrote this passage, again, I want to use this parallel over in Acts chapter 27. So if you want to turn there, you can, or you just want to listen. I want to, uh, this, this real-life storm that he lives through has a lot of parallels. Acts chapter 27, it says, Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along creek close to the shore. Where are they sailing to? Let me very quickly give you the background here. The Apostle Paul, who's been living and speaking and teaching in Jesus' name, has now been arrested and is now undergoing persecution. And he is called out. He says, I want to appeal to Caesar. I want to go and have my case tried before Caesar. And so he's put on a ship and he's being sailed there to Rome, but he's not going to make it anytime soon. Verse 14, as soon as the, but soon a tempestuous wind called a northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could no longer face the wind, we gave way to it and we were driven along. Seemingly out of control, going in the opposite direction that they're supposed to go. Seeming like there's nothing that they could do about it. And he is being sent there, and he's out of control and being thrown across the sea because the ones that he loved had put him in this position. The ones that he was trying to share the gospel with, the ones that he had given his life for, and the ones that he had done all that he could for, had put him in a position where now he is a prisoner in a ship, out of control, careening into the storm. Pastor Ray Stedman 
was once asked a, con a congregation why they dismissed their pastor. When he became older, he's, he's since passed away, but he was often giving uh, counsel to many churches along the way. And they said, well, this pastor, he kept telling us that we were all going to hell. So we got rid of him. And he asked them, he said, well, what does the new pastor say? He says, well, actually, the new pastor says we're all going to hell. He said, well, what's the difference? Well, the difference is when the previous pastor said it, it sounded like he was glad we were going. But when this pastor says it, it sounds like it breaks his heart. You see the difference? See, it's, it's a matter of the heart. See, when we talk here about when the ones you love break your heart, the Apostle Paul loved these people. He had given himself for them, and they were breaking his heart. But for some of you this morning, the application, maybe you don't need to hear any more of the message and it's just going to stop here because maybe that fill-in isn't even going to work for you. Maybe you have to write in the fill-in, the ones you don't love break your heart. When the ones you don't love break your heart. You understand that we have to have, we, we have growing inside of us a personal desire, a personal passion to reach the loss. Is that there in your life? Are you concerned about them the way the Apostle Paul, this deep anguish in his heart? Psalm 126.6 says that he who, who bears seed for sowing, but his tears are being sown with the seed, will doubtless come again rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him, or bringing back the harvest with him, because it is being sown in tears. When the ones you love break your heart, that's difficult. When the ones you don't love break your heart, that's because you have learned to love the unlovely. You see, a personal passion for the lost will lead to a personal interaction with the lost. A personal passion for the lost will lead to a personal interaction with the lost. We can stay inside of these rooms, inside of our cubicle, and never get outside of this space and have concern for the lost and talk about the lost, about those people who are going to hell and seem glad about it. We can look what happened this weekend in Virginia Beach and, and, and look at the awful nature of what's going on in some of the areas in our country and we can look at that and we can, we can look at that with eyes to say they're going straight to hell. Or we can have an understanding that our hearts are breaking for the lost like the Apostle Paul. Because you see, affiliation with the things of God are not the same as salvation through the gospel. Affiliation, meaning we're familiar with God's word. We've been around it our whole lives, or maybe not that long. We've just kind of fallen into step, falling into the pattern of spiritual thinking and believing. But has it changed us? Has the gospel transformed us like it says it will do in Scripture? Have you allowed it to renew your heart and your mind? Because when you do, I don't believe that you can have a personal passion for the loss that just stops at these doors. The reality is, is what you keep by rejecting Christ cannot compare what you gain by receiving Christ. The Apostle Paul talks here. Their adoption to sonship, their divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises, they have all of this. Look at all the things that they can keep, but it's all worthless. If they miss the point of chapter 9, verse 5, that says they were given the Messiah, who is God over all. Nothing else matters. He's the one we forever praise. Lightning strikes. Cue number one that you are going through a storm is when the ones you love break your heart. Cue number two, when God appears to break his promises. When God appears to break his promises. This struggle that's going on inside of Paul is going on inside of many of you this morning. As we progress through this chapter, you will see some statements that are being made here that resonate with some of the discouragement, will resonate with some of the questions that are going on inside of you. Listen, friends, how he wrestles with this. Verse 6, it says, It's not as though God's word has failed. For not all who are descendants from Israel are Israel. 
Now he's talking very specifically about the Jews here. He's talking very specifically about what they had been given. And he's going, has the promise been broken? Nor because they are his descendants are they all called Abraham's children. On the contrary, he's defending his own argument against his own argument. It is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned, is what it says in the Old Testament. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. You see, the, the Jews of the day, the Hebrews, they knew their lineage, and they knew their lineage really, really well. And they could trace it back to be able to say, I am of Abraham. Father Abraham had many sons, and I'm one of them. But if you know that song that our kids sing here in the church, I am one of them, and so are you, it says. Because the promise that is given here, this, this is articulated, the promise was not given just to the bloodline or the seed of Abraham, but the promise was given to those who would follow God's law and follow God's teaching. Don't suppose for a moment that God's word has malfunctioned in some way or another. The problem goes back a long way. From the outset, the Israels of the flesh, uh, they, they, they needed to be Israelites of the Spirit. It was a, a heart condition. It wasn't Abraham's lineage here, but God's promise that was there. And so when, when the Apostle Paul speaks and teaches about how the Gentiles, or people like you and me, had access to the Messiah, it wasn't a breaking of God's promise. It was a reconciling of God's promise. You see, God's promises are for his people, all of his people. He's already built that argument here in Romans chapter 1 through 4. You see, God's promises are secured through his purpose. His purpose was so that all men may know him. For God so loved the world, he died on the cross for you and for me. He gave himself for all. And God's promises are experienced because of his mercy. So if you go to Acts chapter 27, the storm is surging. Paul is in the middle of this storm. And he tells the rest of the men on the ship, he says, yet now I urge you to take heart. There'll be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this night there stood before me an angel of God, of whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul, because you will stand before Caesar. So he is telling everyone, he is making a declarative statement, we're going to be fine, we're going to stand before Caesar because God has promised me that. And yet the ship continues to careen in the middle of the storm. And he is trying to grasp at and hold on to the promise that has been given to him. When the ones you love break your heart, when God appears to break his promises, what are you going to do? My wife and I lived in South Carolina for about 10 years. I was in the military there. I was in the, uh, the Marine Corps. I was a, a bandsman in the Marine Corps. I played saxophone in the Marine Corps. Not many people can say that. Uh, it was a pretty unique opportunity for me. And so I was stationed at Paris Island, South Carolina. If you've got any friends or family from around here who go through a graduation ceremony there at Paris Island, every single weekend, every Thursday and Friday morning, I was responsible for that graduation ceremony. And so that was the main objective of that base. That was the mission of that base. We're going to get recruits through and then get them graduated. And so that meant that my military experience was going to be only up to a six-day deployment. I could be sent anywhere in the world, but I had to be back in six days to do the graduation ceremony the next Friday. And so that limits a little bit of how far they could send us away or what they could ask us to do. That's what took us to South Carolina, and we spent 10 years there thinking I was going to come back right after the military, but we didn't. We didn't make it back. Uh, we stayed there. I went to school there. Uh, we started having our kids there, and as I've shared with you before, our third child uh, was born, Josiah, with a heart defect, and he passed away there in Charleston, South Carolina. In that process, we began looking at what was our next steps, and it was going to be too difficult for us to stay in that place, we felt like, because of all uh, of the trappings of losing a son and, and going back into your home and those types of things. It was going to be a very difficult thing for us. We felt very specifically that God was calling us back to Buffalo, calling us back 
home. We weren't sure why specifically, but it seemed like uh, because of living this life with our son, of, of knowing that every day mattered, and we had 160 of them, but, but every one of those days mattered. So I wanted every single day that I had here on the planet to matter, and I felt like coming back to Buffalo and, and being able to speak to friends and family that, who didn't know Christ, that those days might matter more here in Buffalo than they would where I was living in South Carolina. And so we resigned from our church and, and, and started making uh, uh, choices and decisions that were going to bring us back to Buffalo. My daughter got a magazine that I have hanging on my wall. I've shared this with many of you before. And it was a, a National Geographic magazine for kids that was all about buffaloes. And on the front cover of it, it says, Make Way for Buffalo. It's like, it's, God gave it to us. We're going to Buffalo. So we came here, we were part of a church plant uh, that started just down the road here at the VFW, uh, new church, and it really started to gain momentum. We really got excited. This church, at a year old, we had to go to two services. At two years old, we had our own space. God was working in, in the recovery community. We were seeing people accept Christ. It seemed like a perfect fit for us. We were able to tell our story and share our story about losing our son and the grief and the pain and the sorrow that went through that because specifically in the recovery community, oftentimes an alcoholic or a drug addict starts with some significant loss in their life, and there was something that we could resonate with and share our story with, and God was just doing some tremendous things. And then in January of 2012, I made a foolish mistake in some of the conversations that I'd been having with someone uh, there, and what ended up happening was a rift between myself and the other pastor on the staff, and I was let go off of the staff within two weeks of that conversation. This was what God's promise was. This is where we were supposed to be. What are we going to do now? What are you going to do when the storm comes and God appears to break his promises? What are you going to do when the ones you love break your heart? Here's your third filling for you this morning. When you feel like God is being unfair. That spring, my wife and I really felt like God was being unfair. It's like, God, look what we did for you. We moved back to Buffalo. You owe us. It's Buffalo. <laughs> and then I read passages like this. I say, how stupid are you? We moved back to friends and family. We moved back to an area that we love and enjoy. These men understood what it felt like for God to be unfair. Look at this, verse 14. What shall we say? Is God unjust? Some of your translations say, is God unfair? Not at all. For he said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I may display my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens who he wants to harden. Moses is dealing with Pharaoh is what the story is being told about here. Do you remember this story where Moses is trying to get the people out of Egypt? And he is doing exactly, he can say, God, I did my job. Why on earth would you harden his heart? I marched in here. I put my life at risk before you. I, I did all that I could. I've, I've got the people, the Hebrews are stirred up. They're ready to go. They're ready to follow you, God. I've got them. They're ready. Here we go. I went into Pharaoh, and now you have put the brakes on. And now the Hebrews are mad at me for going in here and making life worse for them. I did my job. What you are doing is just seems unfair. I did my job, he says later, when he gets the Ten Commandments off the top of the mountain, and he comes down, and they're acting like fools. They've, they've created this golden calf, and, and they're worshiping the calf rather than worshiping the holy God who is giving them in writing what they should do. And he destroys it before them. He says, God, wipe them off the face of the earth. 
And God says, I'm going to forgive him this time. And Moses is at a loss. He says, I, I did my job. I did what I was supposed to do. I followed through, God. The plans that you laid out for me, I did my part. What is going on? It doesn't feel like you're being fair. And then later, he stands at the edge of the land of Canaan. He has led them through the desert. He has survived all types of plagues. He has, he has done all that he was supposed to do. And because of one mistake, God says, you will not enter the land. I'll let you climb the mountain and see it, but you will never step foot into that land. And what's being alluded to here, as Moses is, or as Paul is telling Moses' story, is that doesn't it seem like Moses would think that was unfair and unjust? He said that you forgave these awful people, the murmuring and complaining people of Israel, but you won't let me step my foot into the land. Doesn't that seem a little bit unjust? Let me go back to the Apostle Paul. He's on the ship careening into the storm. He has this promise that he's clinging to, that he will survive the storm. Acts chapter 27, verse 29 says, Fearing that we might run into the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for the morning to come. As the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship, they had lowered boats into the sea under the pretense of laying anchors out from the bow. Paul says to the centurion and the soldiers, Unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. These pagans who are jumping ship because they are afraid of the storm. These people who do not believe in God. These people who have no desire to do any of the things that the Apostle Paul is calling them to. If they abandon the ship, Paul, you will not survive the storm. Does that seem fair to you? Paul, who has followed through with all the things that God has asked him to do. Paul, who is now in chains, literally in chains, in a ship that's probably going to go to the bottom of the sea. But if any of these men who are afraid of the storm that God has sent in, the squall that God has sent in, if any of them bail out, Paul will not survive the storm. Friends, that does not seem fair. That does not seem just. When you feel like God is being unfair, when it appears that God is breaking his promises, when the ones you love break your heart, what are you going to do? Where's the hope in that? Here's your last fill-in for you this morning. Hope stabilizes in the storm. Hope stabilizes in the storm. In Romans chapter 9, verse 19, he's using a, a hypothetical person. He says, one of you might say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? If this is God's will, what are we going to do about it? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Doesn't the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common uses? In the message translation, it says, out of the same pot of clay, someone, the, the, the potter can form something that you would put a, uh, flowers in. And in the same pot of clay, then you might make, or you throw it in the oven to bake beans in. It is not an important decision for you because you are not the potter. Just who do you think you are, exactly, is what's being said here. You need to humble yourself, humble your heart before the almighty, sovereign God of the universe. If you remember God talking to Job in the Old Testament, when Job has boils all over his body, he has lost most of his family, he's lost all of his wealth, and he starts complaining, and God speaks to him, and it says, Job, get ready, take it like a man, he says, and he just lays into him, who do you think you are? You see, the sovereign God deals with sinful creatures in such a way so that it displays his glory. We are vessels of mercy, meaning that all the blessings of salvation that we have in our lives, they are undeserved. As the potter forms the clay, we are being formed into something that carries forward the very mercy of God. We deserve judgment for our sin, and yet he shows us mercy. Continuing on, verse 22 
What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the object of his wrath, prepared for destruction? So he could show us wrath. He could show us and make his power known to us, and yet he shows great patience, great mercy, great love. What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, or you and me, who he is preparing in advance for his glory? who he is shaping, who he is molding. (coughs) Jumping down to verse 27, he refers back to the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah crying out concerning Israel. Though the number of Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. What the Apostle Paul is talking about, what the Apostle Paul is highlighting here, what he wants to bring out, those who are not loved are the ones who are being saved. The remnant is there because he has made a way for salvation. He lived this out in Acts chapter 27, verse 35. It says, he took bread. He gave thanks to God in the presence of all. While he's in the ship in the middle of the storm, seemingly everything's unfair, he broke it and began to eat. The storm is churning inside of him, and the storm is churning all around him. And he breaks bread for communion. Then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. Why do you think he would give that specific number of how many people were at communion service that night? Because it mattered, because God had said that not one of them was going to perish in the storm. And when they'd eaten enough, they lightened the ship by throwing the rest of the wheat into the sea. He quotes the prophet Isaiah. One of the most famous passages from Isaiah is Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31, that says this, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. This morning is a time of communion. If our communion attendees would come forward this morning to help us this morning, Have you ever thought of communion being in the middle of the storm? When all is breaking and all is at chaos all around us, this time of communion is designed to be a stabilizing force in all that is chaos. Don't forget what Jesus was looking at when he shared this meal with his disciples. When the apostles gathered around him, when he has this holy huddle around him of his, of his men that he wants to share the last moments with, what he was looking at, what the disciples were looking at, it was not looking good. He was going to be crucified on the cross. The storm internally was real. He would go to the Garden of Gethsemane and say, God, take this cup from me. It's too much to bear. And yet there's this stabilizing that happens. And we can come to communion. And we can just shoot through it. And we can chuck the bread out and hand the juice out and just walk on our merry little way. What was designed by this was a reminder Hope in the middle of the storm. Brother, sister, I don't know what storm you're going through this morning. But I know what's going on in my own life. I know that there's storms going on in my life and in our family and in our hearts. There's, there's constantly these struggles that happen. I know it was happening with the Apostle Paul, friends. So if it's happening in his heart, I believe that it's happening in many of yours this morning, if not all. Can you find stabilization in the storm this morning. You see, the Lord's Supper is more than sipping a cup of juice and eating a small bite. No, it's important. It's a simple act as a way to remember what was symbolized for the little body being broken, blood being shed for you and for me. Whenever we take the Lord's Supper, whenever we come to the table, this communion table, it is designed to be a remembrance. We just had Memorial Day this this last week, and it is designed to be a time of memory and remembrance for those who were slain for our country. Even more so when we come to the table here 
remembering the one who was slain for you and for me and for our eternal security. It's a time to evaluate our lives based on Christ and how he would have us live it. Some of you are going through life this week feeling like God is unfair, feeling like God has broken his promises, feeling like the ones who are around you, the ones you love are breaking your heart. If that is the case, you need to remember who God is. You need to remember who his son Jesus is. And as we come to the table today, I pray that that would be very clear to you. It's more than a religious ritual. It's this communion or common union of brothers and sisters of faith. Taking a moment in the middle of the storm and remembering who he is. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I delivered to you, the Lord Jesus, and the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And so as we've heard from the Apostle Paul today, we will follow suit with that. Maybe you need to have that, that picture of that moment in the storm as they are taking bread, as they are having this time of communion, as the waves are crashing the boat is going up and down, 180-foot vessel being tossed around in the waves. 276 people all there crowded around together, calling out to a holy God to do something in the middle of the storm. Lord, we trust you and thank you for your word. As we come into this time of communion, Lord, I pray that it would be real and tangible today. And Lord, in doing this, where there would be a stabilization of our faith, knowing that the storm is still there, but remembering and coming back to and holding on to your great sovereignty and authority over all things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains lose all their Lose all the guilty stains and sin is plunged beneath that flood. Lose all the guilty stains. dying thief rejoice to see that fountain in his day and there may I though vile as he wash all my sins Wash all my sins away. Wash all my sins away. 
Jesus on the night that he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke and said this is my body which is broken for you this do in remembrance of me in the same way he took the cup saying this is the covenant the new covenant in my blood dying thief the dying thief rejoice to see that fountain in his day and there may I though vile as he wash all my sins away sins away, wash all my sins away, and there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins The new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Thank you. So I shared with you my story in relation to the church I was serving at and being let go and the difficulty of that. But I have to tell you, seven years later, friends, I wouldn't have left. 
I wouldn't have left that church. I wouldn't have left that space. I wouldn't have moved forward at all because I was happy there. I thought that that was exactly what I wanted to be doing, but God had other plans for me. I don't know what you're wrestling with this morning, but it's possible that in the wrestling that God is working to mold you and shape you and form you into who he has called you to be rather than the person that you have called yourself to be. It's possible that God is working and, and he has a bigger plan than you do. Can you believe that? So this morning, I pray that the, the challenge or the application would be that you would lay yourself in humility before a holy God as the Apostle Paul does here knowing that he is in control, knowing that he is supreme, knowing that he has your best interest at heart. That situation that you're going through that seems impossible, he has a plan, he has a people set apart for you as he did with the Israelites. So dear Lord, we pray this morning. There are some who need to respond. As our ushers come forward this morning, Lord, we know that there are some who are just waiting to respond to you, Lord, but they've never had the boldness to do it. It may be by marking something on a connection card. It may be by coming to meet me in the back. It may be by giving for the first time in an offering in a church in a very long time. We trust, Lord, that you are working today, that you are molding and that you are shaping and that you are forming Lord, we trust that you are molding and shaping and forming this church into who you want us to be. Lord, allow us to go through that process with a trust and humility of knowing that you are in control and we are not. Stabilize us in this storm, Lord. As, as what happens in, in our world around us seems chaotic, Lord, we trust that you have a plan. We trust that you have a purpose. Allow us to fall in step with you and then that you would get the ultimate glory because of it. And Lord, we thank you for the way that that fellowship of brothers and sisters in Christ, the, the joy that comes out of that when we see you at work, when we see you move, Lord, we wanna join you in that. Give us that opportunity today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.